This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yes or no to this statement. When it comes to politics, the internet is closing our minds. That is what we are debating here tonight. Welcome from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two. And what we're touching on here, well, it it starts with this, a sampling of this, and see if it's familiar. This is a recent exchange among Wall Street Journal readers who are posting to each other about health care. Glenn the Liberal just had his argument attacked by David the Conservative. Glenn gets mad. One wonders how you can even press the keys on the keyboard. Please just go away. David responds, now I know you're a liberal because liberals are rude and will not listen to any reason. A guy named Kevin joins in the attack and he tells Glenn to read up on economics and civics. Glenn tells Kevin, put this in your pipe and smoke it, you pseudo-intellectual rube. From nowhere, a guy named Mark weighs in and he tells Glenn that he is intellectually challenged and advises him that he needs to get some lithium. When it comes to politics, the internet is changing our mind. Is that what we just heard, our minds closing out there? Or is it a great thing that these guys are actually out there engaging with each other at all? Our debate goes in three rounds, then the audience votes to choose the winner. On the side for our motion, when it comes to politics, the internet is changing our minds, Eli Pariser, a board member and former executive director of MoveOn.org. And Eli, at the age of 20, you joined MoveOn.org to direct its foreign policy campaigns, and then a couple of years later, you became its executive director. You have been an online organizer all of your adult life, but now you are warning about the dangers of the Internet. So what changed, you or the Internet? Both, uh, but the Internet changed more than I did. All right. We'll see. When you, when you get up there, we're going to see what you mean by that. Your debating partner, let's welcome Siva Vaidhyanathan. Siva, you're a professor and Department of Media Studies chair at the University of Virginia. You're also author of this book, The Googleization of Everything and Why We Should Worry. This is actually your second debate with us, and the first time you were debating for the motion, Google violates its don't be evil motto, and you won. Do you still think, do you still think Google is evil? Well, I never thought Google was evil, but I did think that was an impossible standard for any company to hold. So it was actually not that hard to win. I think the really interesting question is, does Google think I'm evil? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Our motion is, when it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our mind. Let's meet the team arguing against. First, Yevgeny Morozov. Uh, You're a visiting fellow at Stanford University, a Schwartz Fellow at the New America Foundation. You wrote a book also, The Net Delusion, The Dark Side of Internet Freedom. You have said, this was in a TED Talk, that when the Internet reaches a remote Russian village, people are not going to be sitting there watching reports from Human Rights Watch. You said they're going to be watching pornography, sex in the city, or maybe funny videos of cats. (laughs) So how, how worried are you about these cat videos? Well, cats, I think, are the new opium of the masses. And uh, dictators have figured it out, and they exploit it perfectly as a rule of thought control. (laughs) Thank you. And let's meet your debating partner, Jacob Weisberg. Jacob, you are chairman and editor-in-chief of the Slate Group. Now, you wrote for print for everybody in the old days, the New Republic, New York Magazine, Financial Times. 
But in 1996, you joined a new online magazine called Slate as its chief political correspondent. That was very early in the game. So what did you know back then? Well, John, I was an early visionary. No, actually, <laughs> I, uh, I got very lucky when my friend Michael Kinsley decided to, to found Slate, and it seemed like a fun thing to do. And uh, it turns out it's impossible to go back. The Internet spoils you as a writer because of the freedom you have and the speed. All right. Thank you, Jacob Weisberg. Our four debaters, ladies and gentlemen. So on to round one, opening statements from each of our debaters and going up first for our motion, which is when it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. Eli Pariser, he's a MoveOn.org board member, CEO of Upworthy.com and author of The Filter Bubble, What the Internet is Hiding from You. That book was the inspiration for our having this debate tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Eli Pariser. Good evening, everyone. So the core of my argument is this. Attention is the most valuable commodity out there right now. If you command attention, then you can direct it towards products or services, and you can make a lot of money. And that's why all of the big companies on the Internet are trying to figure out what the best strategy is for gathering as much of it as possible. And most of them are focused on the same strategy, which is gathering as much data about us as they can, and then using that data to give us what they think, what they predict, based on their, this data and their algorithms, we're going to be interested in. If you talk to these companies, if you look at what they're saying, it's very clear that this is a big part of the business plan. Eric Schmidt says, very soon it'll be nearly impossible to see something that has not in some way been tailored to you. Sheryl Sandberg of, of Facebook says, in the next few years, uh, it'll be anachronistic to visit a website that hasn't been customized to your personal interests in some way. And the thing is that these companies aren't blind to the psychology of all this. They've read all of the studies that show that when you present people with information that confirms what they already believed was true, you can actually see these little bursts of pleasure happening in people's brains. And conversely, when people are presented with information that challenges what they believed, they get cranky. That's just the way we're wired. And so if you're a company that's trying to meet stockholder demands and you have this power to present people with information that tends to validate them, why wouldn't you? So a few examples of what this looks like in practice. It looks like one person Googling Egypt and seeing lots of information about the Arab Spring, and another person Googling Egypt at the same time and seeing nothing about the Arab Spring. This actually happened. I've got the screenshots on my website. And uh, you know, I could run through a number of other anecdotes, but actually there's been a study, the only peer-reviewed study I'm aware of on the Google search results and the effects of personalization there, that shows that 60% of the search results on a given front page are usually uh, personalized. Either they're in a different order or they're actually you know, totally different results based on who Google thinks you are and what it thinks you'll be interested in. So what I think we have to begin to do is to tease apart what the Internet actually does from what we wish it would do or what it possibly could do. And in particular, we have to tease apart uh, what's possible to access versus what people do access. For example... Now that the, it's, it's easy now to access uh, the front page of Le Monde or Dizite as it is uh, to access the New York Times. So you would think, given this vast increase in accessibility of foreign policy information of what's going on in other countries, that people would know more about what's going on there. In fact, that's not true. According to a Pew study from 2007, people actually were more informed on foreign policy matters before the internet than, than in 2007. And this is passive. This isn't me turning on Fox News or me turning on uh, or, or picking up a copy of The Nation. This is embedded in an increasing number of websites. Yahoo News in 2007 uh, was a gateway for 80 million people that looked the same. 
But now Yahoo runs 13 million different variations of Yahoo News front page every day. I don't think that this has caused the extreme political polarization that we're seeing right now, but I think it can't help but exacerbate it. You know, Google says that it's trying to provide relevance. But what is the most relevant search result when you're a 9-11 conspiracy theorist Googling 9-11? Is it the conspiracy links that Google's algorithm would tend to promote? Or is it the popular mechanics article that would debunk that stuff? I asked Google this question, and they didn't really have a clear answer. So it's with regret that I, I think the internet is not living up to its potential. What, the way that most people actually use this thing isn't to broaden their political perspectives. In fact, the paths that we generally travel on online will tend to narrow our political views. Thank you. Thank you, Eli Pariser. Our motion is, when it comes to politics, the internet is closing our minds. And here to speak against the motion, uh, Jacob Weisberg. He is a pioneer in online journalism. Jacob is editor-in-chief of the Slate Group, the internet-based arm of the Washington Post Company. Look, I'll I'll concede that the uh, internet narrowing our political perspectives is an interesting theoretical problem. People do have a tendency to prefer listening to what they already agree with. And the Internet makes it easier, in theory, for people to live in a solipsistic bubble where they mostly interact with people who have similar views. Uh, But there are a lot of interesting theoretical problems, you know, from the Malthusian food scarcity to the Y2K bug that are just never borne out in practice. Uh, The Atlantic magazine gets a cover out of this every month, right? Uh, is Google making you stupid? Is Facebook making you lonely? That's actually the cover this month. Is Twitter destroying your attention span? Uh, but cyber realists like Evgeny and me try to look at questions like this in a more empirical way. So what's the evidence for tonight's proposition that the Internet is narrowing our views? I won't say there's none, but I will say it is laughably weak. Uh, and there's some really good evidence that the web's doing the opposite of what our opponents claim, that it's exposing us to a broader range of perspectives and making us less parochial in our outlook. Um, There are, of course, some studies about this. There was one a few years ago that showed left and right-wing bloggers don't just talk to their own sides. They respond to each other and link to each other a lot. Um, There's a Pew study from last year that showed, this is a quote, no evidence that social network users, including those who use Facebook, were any more likely to cocoon themselves in social networks of like-minded and similar people, as some have feared. The biggest study, which involved 250 million Facebook users, yes, it was sponsored by Facebook, but it was a good study, uh, showed convincingly that most people share links from people they aren't close to. That is, we do reach outside of our personal circles for news. So Eli said at the beginning of his very interesting book that he published last year that Google was tailoring search results to our politics. He said that on the basis of one anecdote. Uh, Allow me to be skeptical. I did a test on this where I asked friends of mine, different parts of the country, different political views, different worlds, to search some parallel, very political, loaded terms like climate change. And basically, they got exactly the same thing. Now, since Eli wrote his book, Google has changed, and it now includes results from your social network and search returns. Uh, But Google added social searching in a way that actually specifically addresses Eli's problem. He had a lot of influence on this. You can turn customization off by pressing the prominent button that says, hide personal results. On Facebook, it's just as easy to turn off customization. In other words, the filtering they do, these, these giant sites, is completely transparent and optional. 
Now, it is worth noting that we did used to have the kind of constricting filter bubble Eli's worried about, and that was the mainstream media before the Internet. When I was a kid in the 70s, you found out about the world through TV networks, a couple of news magazines, local newspapers. There weren't any national ones. Um, and it was a very limited range of viewpoints and, and voices. And if you want to create that kind of filter bubble, all you have to do is remove technologies before television, before radio, before newspapers. Uh, finally, I don't think you need to look at all these studies or understand algorithms to make up your mind about tonight's motion. All you have to do is ask yourself a pretty simple question. Has the web narrowed my mind? Or has it exposed me to a broader range of voices, sources, and ideas than we all used to get when we relied on a consensus-oriented mainstream media for all our information? Unless you're convinced that the web makes you narrower, you should vote against tonight's motion. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. A reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. When it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. We have heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third, debating for the motion, the author of The Googleization of Everything and Why We Should Worry, chair of the University of Virginia's Department of Media Studies. He's been called Google's gadfly, Siva Vaidhyanathan. Thank you. So the, uh, the Internet has so narrowed my mind that I didn't hear a word Jacob said. Uh, <laughs> So in, in these brief comments, I'll explain what Eli and I mean by the Internet and what we mean by politics. And I'm going to convince you to support the resolution. First, try to remember 1999, the days of AOL, the days of prodigy. In, in 1999, Thomas Friedman wrote these words. The Internet is going to be like a huge vice. It's going to keep tightening and tightening that system, meaning the system of globalization, around everyone in ways that will only make the world smaller, smaller and faster and faster. Well, Thomas Friedman could not have been more wrong. He's been exactly that wrong many times, but never more wrong. <laughs> now, in, in 2012, it's clear that there is no such thing as the Internet, capital T, capital I, as Friedman and others so often described in the 1990s. There is no equalizing force, great democratizing force. There is no global network of networks that unites us all and gives us all equal voice to interact with each other across borders. In fact, the alleged network of networks is, in 2012, balkanized, nationalized, compromised, anesthetized, supersized, circumcised, and hypnotized. It's far from global, and it's getting less so every day. Internet technologies amplify so much of what we already are and what we already want, and the fact is, we're pretty provincial animals. So you add the Internet to it, we just double down. We get more provincial. So here in 2012, or now in 2012, we are not all holding virtual hands with our Facebook friends across the globe singing We Are the World. There is no coordinated global movement for justice. There is no sophisticated online debate about our collective human fate or even our basic human needs. The dominant powers governing our digital experiences the state, for instance, in China, or corporations in Brazil or the United States, are not interested in such matters. They are not interested in us being political. Sometimes these powers actively restrict us, like in China. More often than not, these powers seduce us into shallow consumption, like shopping 
or giggling at cats or clicking on cows. Our minds are closing because our attentions are distracted, fractured, and segregated into niches and nations. But all hope is not lost. There is nothing about the nature of the internet that prevents us from being political. Many of us actually are. I would, I would suspect that most of us in the audience have done a pretty good job of avoiding these traps. We're pretty elite. We're pretty aware. And we route around a lot of these problems. We're also hungry for information. If you weren't hungry, you wouldn't be here. If we recognize the biases inherent in many of the platforms of our media systems, we could build platforms that enhance Republican deliberation and extend cosmopolitan perspectives. We just haven't done that yet. When it comes to politics, the internet, most importantly, how we experience the internet, is closing our minds, one cow click at a time. Please vote for the motion. Thank you. Thank you. Our motion is when it comes to politics, the internet is closing our minds and our final debate are against the motion. He comes from the former Soviet Republic of Belarus, something that has shaped his interest in the internet's role in politics. He is a Schwartz Fellow at the New American Foundation and author of the book, The Net Delusion. Evgeny Morozov. Thank you. I'd like to begin with a few lessons from history. First, technology always plays the scapegoat whenever it comes to debates about the closing of the American mind. Remember Alan Bloom and his best-selling book, The Closing of the American Mind in the 80s? Well, let me remind you, Bloom has actually argued that the closing of the American mind occurs because of CD players and headphones. And he actually argued that those might incite teenagers to kill their parents why his reactionary torch is now being carried by the liberal crowd from move on is beyond me. <laughs> I think this is a fairy tale uh, for many of the reasons that Jacob has outlined, but let me also provoke and give you three examples of how filters may actually enhance our political culture. So let's take Twitter. Many people think that Twitter, unlike Google and Facebook, does not engage in customization and filtering. This is actually not true. Twitter does hide certain types of managers. Thus, if I f you follow me, but you don't follow Siva, and I send Siva a public tweet, you will not see that tweet. And mind you, Twitter made that filtering decision on your behalf. Is it paternalistic? Sure. But is such paternalism justified? Well, take my case. I follow more than 2,000 people on Twitter. And I'm very happy with the breadth of news that I get. But if I had to read every single conversation that these 2,000 people have with thousands of people that they know, I would have never managed to follow 2,000 people. At best, I would follow 100. This is the beauty of it. Twitter's clever filter allows me to access more, not less useful information. Now, let's tackle the elephant in the room, which is Google. Suppose I'm so keen on, on conspiracy theories that my blackboard is larger than Glenn Beck's. So, I believe that 9-11 was an inside job. I believe that Obama is a Kenya-born Muslim, that climate change is a non-issue manufactured by the lamestream media, that the government is hiding the truth about the UFOs, and so on. In other words, I'm exactly the kind of guy that Eli is worried about. Furthermore, suppose that I became all of that before the filter bubble set in, in that great age of unfiltered viewpoints that we used to call the era of cable television. So now comes the filter bubble, and Google starts personalizing my search results. 
Thus, instead of seeing generic search results about, say, 9-11, actually see that some search results have already been endorsed or liked by my friends. Now, this is the new mutual exposure. Why is it a good thing? Well, if you think that all my friends are not cases like me, then we do have a problem because all of us may end up becoming even more paranoid. But let's leave Charlie Manson and the Unabomber aside for a moment. I don't think they are representative of most internet users and their friends. The way Google and Facebook map out our social connections, they try to be very comprehensive. We see links from people we went to school with, our colleagues, our relatives, and so forth. It's quite likely that many of these people will have radically different positions on 9-11, climate change, Obama's birthday, and UFOs. So my point was this. A link to the report of, say, 9-11 Commission that has been endorsed by someone from my social circle is more trustworthy than a generic Google link that has not passed through a similar social filter. In other words, it's a possibility that people would now be paying more attention to positions they would otherwise find crazy and conspiratorial only because their friends are known to endorse those positions. To conclude, there are many good concerns about the future of the Internet. The death of privacy ranks very high on my personal list, but the filter bubble is not one of them. It's okay to hate Google and Facebook, but we should hate them for the right reasons. Thank you. Thank you, Yevgeny Morozov. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion being argued is, when it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. Now we go on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address each other directly and also answer questions from you in the audience and from me. We have two teams of two who are arguing over this motion. When it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. The side arguing for the motion, Eli Pariser and Siva Vaidhyanathan, they are arguing that the Internet is actually several internets, uh, that they put up walls uh, between the lands that are occupied by people of differing opinions, between nations as much as between liberals and conservatives, and that especially with customization uh, designed to give us what we want, that the Internet is getting worse at bringing together people who are not like-minded. The team arguing against them, Jacob Weisberg and Yevgeny Morozov, uh, they're saying, sure, maybe these bad things could happen someday, but there's not much evidence that they are happening a lot yet right now. And besides a tool that can and does connect strangers globally around the world, by definition, almost is a good thing. So I want to put a question to the side that is arguing against the motion that when it comes to politics, the internet is closing our minds. Jacob Weisberg, you, you said as your sort of slam dunk point to the audience, you have to decide whether you think the audience is closing your mind. But if the other guys are right, they won't know whether the audience is closing their minds because if their minds are being closed, part of having their minds closed is not knowing that their minds are being closed. <laughs> I mean, but, they're, but they're saying that it's, it's an insidious thing, that it's a stealth thing, that it happens in a way that, that it, it comes to you, you, you. You go through this process unawares. Can you take that on? Siva made this point that well, for those of us in this room, this really isn't a problem. I mean, we're media savvy, we're educated, we're, we're sophisticated. It's a, it's a problem for the hoi polloi out there, the, the unwashed masses. I, fi I find that argument condescending. I mean, we live in a, in a democracy, and it seems, seems to me 
that we're all responsible for the information we receive, and not everybody engages in deeply and as deeply in different subjects. But the difference with the Internet is we can measure it. You know, we never knew who r- read those stories in the B section of the New York Times about Albany and, and the state legislature. In, in, on the Internet, you know how many people click on them. It's about it 11, mean, I think. Yeah, right? well, uh, yeah <laughs> exactly. But how many people were actually read, read to the end or even the beginning of the story before we had the Internet? Well, so take on, uh, number one, um, uh, Jacob's point that, that you're, I think, suggesting a little bit of snobbery. I merely meant that Jacob's test, whether it works for you, wasn't a good enough test, largely because you are just you, uh, and you are not we. You are not uh, a greater sample, right? So if we're going to be empirical, let's be good about the social science we, we deploy. That is the worst possible empirical test, what happens to you. But wasn't your partner using the, that's what happened to me when I typed in Egypt? (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the studies about this stuff. Because uh, uh, first off, the reason that it's so hard to study this stuff is because the easiest way to study it is to get inside the black box of these companies. And these companies don't have any interest in letting uh, people go in and prove that these companies are doing bad things. But it's very hard to look at from the outside, um, which is why there's just not many studies that haven't been funded by Facebook, funded by Microsoft, funded by the companies themselves. The one clear study on Google personalization is a study by a guy named Martin Fuse. Uh, He looked at how a search history affects the personalization you get. And it's very clear, you know, again, 60% of the search results on the first page are different for most, you know, for people who have a long web history in Google. But actually, I think the study that's the most interesting here is the Genskow study that, uh, that Jacob was referring to, initially described as a study that showed that people are linking to each other and that the Internet isn't as polarizing as we thought. Um, and the interesting thing is if you dig into that study, it actually arguably shows the exact opposite. What they did was they created an isolation index for each different kind of uh, medium. And so the isolation index for cable news was about 3.3. On the Internet... The Internet had a seven, uh, an isolation index of seven. So it's twice as polarizing, as polarized as cable news. And they did this isolation index uh, calculation on people's sets of friends as well. And people's groups of friends was 30. You know, I think actually if you look into the studies that have been okay. done, let's let, uh, it's quite clear. Let's, you know, let's, let's bring Evgeny yeah. in. And no, I just think, you know, it's fine to be talking about Evgeny studies. That no one but few people in this audience have rats, so they'll sound very assertive. But... Uh, I think you also have to keep in mind that a lot depends on what kind of information you're trying to access online. If you're searching for pizza in Manhattan and, you know, I'm searching it from my mobile phone and, you know, Google knows where I am, I would actually want 99% of the searches also to be personalized, probably not 60. 60 is not high enough, in part because it's very obvious that what I want to do is to order a pizza. Right? So again, if I'm searching for political information, right, maybe the ratio should be 10% or 5% or zero. So to say that there is 60% of information that's personalized doesn't say much because it all depends on what it is that is being uh, personalized. The other point is that, again, take something like YouTube. So if you don't sign into YouTube, YouTube will show you at the very front page videos that are most popular with the rest of the crowd. You'll see all those fascinating cat videos. You'll see whatever is now popular in the online world. They will all be displayed to you, and you'll see them very prominently. If I sign in, 
with my Google account, with my search history, instead of cat videos, I'll see links to new exciting videos about history, about culture, about theater. Why? Because Google and YouTube know that those are the kind of videos that I like to watch. So if Google can show me more videos about history than videos about cats, I can't really see how the internet is closing our minds. Right. Siva, are you arguing that the internet is closing uh, our minds for your Thank response. you, Evgeny, for making two of my points. Number one, number one, that the notion of of personalization, either through Facebook or another social network or through Google, is actually tremendously helpful to us for shopping. It's not so good for learning. When you want to learn... About when, cats. When you want to learn about <laughs> anything complex, the worst thing you can do is subject yourself to a social filter. The best thing you can do... You need better friends. Is challenge yourself. <laughs> the best thing... You're the person I retweet the most. The, um, <laughs> The best thing you can do... You need to get out of the bubble. The best thing you can do is seek sources of expertise, use online sources that are focused in particular areas, like health, like science, right? That means talk to an expert, and that means go beyond asking a small set of people uh, what the best way to explore a particular issue is. But for pizza, not a bad idea. And we can talk later, because I'll tell you. I used to Why live not in integrate 2,000 people that I follow on Twitter, one of whom is you? Why not integrate those sources in my search results? Why shouldn't I be able to see the search results that I like if no one is concerned about privacy? Don't you think the links you share or click on are not smart or interesting for me? They are for you. That's why you're my buddy. But that doesn't mean necessarily that what I'm doing is, is enhancing anybody else's uh, why don't you trust me to choose my friends and sources? I, you, you know, Eli, I Eli Paris, sorry, I, I, I also think your opponents who are arguing against the closing of Americans' minds through the Internet have also made the argument that the, this, this uh, personalization and customization, uh, the filtering helps you think. It helps you organize. It, it cuts away the chaff. It brings things down to a manageable amount of material. Uh, and, and I can see the, the, the appeal to that argument. So take that on, Eli Pariser. Well, you don't hear me arguing uh, that all personalization is bad or all filtering is bad. That's kind of a nonsensical argument. Uh, you know, but the question is, what are the filters, what are the lenses through which we're looking at the world now doing for most people who are looking at the world through those lenses? Um, I think it's, you know, we're talking a lot here about Twitter, but it's important to remember that Twitter, Twitter is a fringe phenomenon on the Internet relative to Google or Facebook. Twitter has a tiny, tiny user base. Only 200 million. Well, yeah, but but the, actual, the actual user, you know, the active users, if you look at active users on Twitter, it's actually much smaller. It's about 25 million people, which is a lot of people, but not it's compared a, to Facebook, book, too, not, compared to, not compared to Google. And so uh, we have to look at sort of how most people are using this stuff. Uh, yes, Jacob I, I just want to ask you, Eli, one other question. I mean, since we're dealing with the interesting implications of this thing that I don't think is happening, how do you, how do you want to, what kind of regulation do you want to, to deal with this problem? I mean, do you want to say that Google and Facebook aren't allowed to filter in certain ways, or do you want them to become this sort of paternalistic gatekeepers that say, you know, if you're searching for Lady Gaga video, you also have to have a little bit of this interesting study from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm not suggesting that we replace the, the old media paternalism with new paternalism. I'm suggesting that, you know, if we built these tools toward the purpose of helping people get good 
information, including a diversity of perspectives. Um, we could do that in a way that would draw on the Internet's strengths. So I'll give you one example. You know, Facebook, the main way that you propagate information across Facebook is with the like button. The like button has a very particular valence. It's easy to click like on I baked a cake. It's hard to click like on Massacre and Darfur, you know, continues for 11th year. Now, without instituting any kind of objective paternalism, this is more important than that, you could put an important button on Facebook that would allow people to elevate the topics that they believed were important, as well as the topics that they think are fun and interesting and that they'd like their friends to see. That helps us be good citizens. It doesn't solve the filtering problem. Come on, we'll still be as close-minded if you buy into a paradigm you know, with the important button. It's just that now, in addition to being close-minded, three people in the audience will care about Darfur. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is, when it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. Welcome back to the program. Let me ask the side that's arguing that when it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. For, for some concrete examples of this phenomenon that concerns you actually having caused harm to the body politic. Because there's a little bit of an assumption that we all do need to be talking to each other and that there's a, a middle that we'll all reach in some kumbaya moment. But in fact, what's wrong with having people entrenched in their own camps, angry at each other, as long as the political spectrum is covered overall? Just a little story. I, when I was on the book tour for my book, uh, I was on a radio show in Eli St. Paris, Louis. Sir. And... The, the host decided to make this big spectacle of having people Google Barack Obama and call in and read their search results. It was a really boring radio hour. And, um, and the first person called in and the second person called in and they interviewed everybody and, and it was exactly the same. And I was thinking, this is the worst book promotion you know, I've ever done. <laughs> and then a third guy called in uh, and he said, you know, it's the damnedest thing. I, when I Google Barack Obama the first thing that comes up is this link to this site about how he's not a natural citizen. And the second link is also a link to the site about how, you know, he doesn't have a birth certificate. That was and, a publicist, just and, so that you know. <laughs> oh, I was wondering about that. But so, I mean, I think the danger here is that um, it's not just that he was getting a view of the world that was really far from the, 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 the average here, um, but that he didn't even know that that was the view that he was getting. Jacob, can you resp- I mean, I, I think Eli left a pretty good image hanging out there of, of these folks truly not knowing how much they don't know and believing what, they, what they're getting and not understanding how slanted it is. So can you but, respond to that? But a guy who called into a radio show, I mean, I know the plural of anecdote is data. But, I mean, if this were really happening in the way you say, you, you say it is, wouldn't there be some kind of decent study that actually showed widely varying results? I mean, as I say, I've tried to test this out as best I can. Um, I've tried it, you know, myself on a variety of browsers, signed in, si- signed out. Wikipedia always comes up first. Sometimes it comes up second. I do not think there is actually the kind of variety you're talking about in searches done most of the time by most people. All right, I'd like to go to audience questions at this point. We're in the middle of round two. Our motion is, when it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. My name is Andy. Uh, so I, I heard a question about confirmation bias, and this is, I really don't know the answer, which is, do you think now, uh, or before the Internet, it was harder to avoid information that would challenge 
your beliefs, through, whether it be through the nightly news or an encyclopedia. I mean, you mentioned Wikipedia, but that might be, there might be an analog to the encyclopedia of old, but now you could just go to Conservapedia and find out that, you know, wow, Paul Revere actually, the ride was consistent with what Sarah Palin described it as, right? <laughs> um, and so it's a lot easier to find that information that's going to confirm your biases, um, and that would contribute to the closing of the mind. Siva? Um, before five years ago, um, I didn't have such a thing as Facebook on which to engage in conversation uh, with my friends. I ran two blogs, uh, and both of them were maddening because every conversation I had was overwhelmed by harassing people, people who were merely there to disrupt the conversation. We call them trolls. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. that I closed down my blogs is it was so maddening. As opposed that- to taking lithium. Exactly, exactly. The quality of discourse in the comments was just out of control. On Facebook, it's a lot more comfortable, right? It's a lot more pleasant. It's because I never see people I disagree with. It's really lovely now. <laughs> I, I think I, a lot of the questions... Uh... Uh, a lot of the questions that came me in on Twitter, through, a lot of the questions that came in through Slate are are similarly focused on on this question of the impact on the quality of the American political discourse. And a Levi Osborne in Warrensburg, Missouri, asks: Is it so much the internet in itself that is closing our minds as it is the hyper partisanship of these commentators? He's talking also not just about people who are online, but people who are also in television, of people with hyper-partisan points of view. Any, uh, Jacob Weisberg. Well, I do think the, the phenomenon of, of increased polarization in Congress is, is pretty clearly documented. That's happening, and I, I deplore it. I just don't think the Internet has anything to do with it. I think the big drivers of that are uh, redistricting, which put people in districts that tend to go one way or the other and fewer that swing back and forth. I think it's fundraising. I think hyperpartisan media, of which Fox is, is probably the best example, have, have some impact on it. But members of Congress, these are, if you want to look for a, peop- a group of people who really aren't on the Internet very much, that's them. I mean, I don't <laughs> think it's what's driving it. I think, I mean, just to take us back Eli to Parker. the resolution, I don't think anyone up here would argue that the primary thing driving American very partisan spirit of American discourse uh, is the Internet. The question is, is the way that most people use the Internet helping or hurting? And I think, you know, it's hard to argue, you know, most people's social networks are homogenous. That's just true. If you're getting your news more from people uh, who you know, you're getting more of your news from people who are like you. Uh, Jacob Weisberg, I mean, you know, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to always say, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. And I think we, we all agree that in a democracy, you need an informational commons to some extent, where people are, are arguing about what they think about reality, not about reality itself. But I think Wikipedia is a pretty great informational commons. And it is, again, the first search return on almost everything, or at least one of the first few. And Wikipedia has its issues and problems. But overall, Wikipedia strives to be neutral ground on an informational level. The Internet cuts both ways. And in some ways, it can cut in favor of confirmation bias you're talking about. And in some ways, it can cut right against it. But I think we also need to be realistic yeah, let me, about let, the Let me let the that. other side come back to that. Eli Paris, who is arguing the internet sure. is closing our minds. Well, just to go uh, from anecdote to the, to the study, one of the, so one of the findings of, of the Fuse, Martin Fuse study was that the more personalized Google search results were, the further down uh, Wikipedia was in the search results. So actually, the, the larger your search history, the, the less uh, Wikipedia is, comes up. But Wikipedia do you see any logic? Why would Google deliberately want to demote Wikipedia in search results? 
Totally. I see the logic. What's I just logic? think that the logic, you know, they Our have the planet. means and the motive to provide the links that people will click on the most. Is it because of that burst of pleasure principle that you talked about, that in fact that they've actually studied it and that we feel good and we stick around if we get results? Yeah, I think like. that's one so of the driving factors. You, you never got the chance to respond no to that point. Google I'd like places to hear. no ads on Wikipedia. Google doesn't care what you click on. All they care is that you stay on Google. Right? And I think right now what Google actually wants to do is to present you the result right away. I think from a business perspective, I see no reason why Google would want to serve you biased search results and show conservapedia before Wikipedia. If you can produce a study that will prove that, it does it's, so it's a vast penalty for Google. It does so mathematically, not politically. It doesn't distinguish between a political site and a pizza site because it doesn't do that. Of course it does. Because when you search for GOP, it knows you're searching for GOP and not pizza. It doesn't read what GOP is. It associates it with all the other GOP clicks. It doesn't flag it as political. It just associates it mathematically with all the other behavior going on on the web. So GOP could be pepperoni as far as the algorithm Great old pepperoni, yes. All right. I want to remind you we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. When it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. And in the center there. Um, you guys have talked a lot about personalization of the Internet and why that's bad, but I'm asking those who are for the motion, um, what about people who go and seek out information in terms of wanting to comment on articles and videos that are against their own beliefs. Yeah, so I, I, again, it's not that it's impossible or even that hard to find information that you disagree with online. There's a great uh, cartoon, uh, you know, that someone's staying up late at night and the person tries to get them to come to bed and they say, but someone on the Internet is wrong. That's like the experience that uh, a lot of us have a lot of the time. Um, but the question is whether the sort of whether the daily routines that we move through online will tend to bring us into contact more with people who make us feel that way or more with people who actually validate how we feel. Um, now, just to address Twitter in particular, like I, I agree with with these guys that Twitter is like a pretty good medium for filtering the internet, and I use it to, uh, you know, I, I follow Carl Rove on Twitter, and I get Carl Rove's tweets, and it's great. You know, I also follow him on Facebook, and I never see his Facebook uh, posts because Facebook actually does a lot more personalization than you know than Twitter does. So you is know, that, that a relief would, to you, or yeah, it's a, well, Twitter is a <laughs> do you want more Carl Rose? Twitter's, Twitter's great, but Twitter's not how most people use the internet. But there are a lot of caveats to this argument. You keep saying, oh, well, Twitter's great, but it doesn't count because it's not big enough. I mean, just to go back to the numbers a minute, Twitter claims these are their numbers. 200, more than 200 million registered users, more than 100 million active users. Facebook Worldwide. claims 800 million registered users. Jacob. So maybe it has four times users, but I mean, it's not insignificant. No, All right, that's we're not at an correct. impasse, and that ends round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, when it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. And here's where we are. We are about to hear closing statements from each debater. Remember how you voted before the debate because this is their last chance to persuade you that they've presented the better argument, and you'll be asked once again to vote and to pick the winner in just a few minutes. On to round three, closing statements from each debater in turn. Our motion is, when it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds, and here to summarize his position against the motion, Jacob Weisberg, chairman and editor-in-chief of the Slate Group. 
the internet doesn't change human nature. It just creates new opportunities for us. And if your view of human nature is that people are naturally inclined to be ignorant and bigoted and extreme, uh, you're going to focus on the way the web lets them become even narrower and more closed-minded. But if that's your view of things, your problem isn't with the web, it's with democracy, because people like that aren't going to do a very good job of governing themselves. Uh, if, on the other hand, you think people are capable of informing and govern, uh, governing themselves, you have to appreciate the way that the web, which is the greatest trove of open information that the world has ever known, empowers us and broadens our political perspective. Does anyone here actually think that our political system would be better off without the web's democratization of information and the multiplicity of voices? Do you think we'd be better off if, if, uh, if the web or Google or Facebook and Twitter or blogs were somehow magically taken away or regulated in some paternalistic way? And I, I want to ask you again to, to think about your personal experience, because it may not be an academic study, but collectively it's meaningful. Do you think the Internet is making you more narrow, or is it exposing you to ideas, people, and arguments and points of view that you wouldn't have access to without it? In closing, I just want to say that the idea that you and I would be less narrow in our politics without the web isn't just wrong, it's actually preposterous. And that's why you have to vote against tonight's motion. Thank you, Jacob Weisberg. Our motion is when it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. And here to summarize his position for the motion, Eli Pariser, MoveOn.org board member and author of The Filter Bubble. So I want to read you a quote from two Stanford researchers uh, from 1997. They said, uh, we expect that advertising-funded search engines will be inherently biased towards the advertisers and away from the needs of consumers. We believe that the issue of advertising causes enough mixed incentives that it's crucial to have a competitive search engine that is transparent and in the academic realm. Now, the two researchers were Sergey Brin and Larry Page, and this was just months before they launched Google as a for-profit entity. I think that version of them was right. I think that the companies that increasingly control where and how we put information online uh, have mixed motives. And, um, you know, what's been interesting for me since writing the book is that I've actually been invited to come talk with engineers at all of these companies, uh, Amazon, Apple, Google, YouTube, and Facebook. I've had conversations with people in each of those places. And uh, it's sort of funny for me to hear people you know, try to suggest this isn't a big part of what these companies are trying to do. The engineers know that it is. They wrestle with this every day. They wrestle with the mixed motives, with these questions of how they should be building these platforms. Um, and they know, as one uh, Netflix vice president told me, uh, that they can easily end up trapping people in these uh, bubbles where they tend to believe the same thing. So if you believe that the companies whose algorithms decide what we pay attention to will tend to expose us to a broad, diverse set of sources, then you should vote with them. But if you agree with me that we should scrutinize that and that these commercial interests uh, will tend to use that power to placate people rather than exposing them to more broad sense of, sets, uh, senses of view, uh, then you should vote that the Internet has, in fact, unfortunately, uh, been closing our minds. Thank you, Eli Pariser. This is our motion. When it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Yevgeny Morozov, author of The Net Delusion, visiting scholar at Stanford and Schwartz Fellow at the New America Foundation. Well, I wish that Dom Draper had a chance to respond to that 1997 paper from Google. Again, you may think that advertising is evil, but again, advertising is the kind of evil that's also inevitable. So Eli has mostly avoided the what's to be done question. 
In his book, he actually is much more, I think, straightforward. And he does want Google and Facebook to intervene and to expose us to more diverse information. This content is a utopian dream that is not realizable in practice. Do we really want Facebook and Google to start nudging us to pay more attention to Joseph Colony in Uganda when we are searching for information about our local city council? But then why pay more attention to Joseph Kony and say not climate change or Syria? Who will adjudicate here? Do we really think that Silicon Valley is capable of this? Do we really think that Silicon Valley should be in this business? Again, you have to think about the proposed solutions. Often they are worse than the cure. Information is not like food. Politics is not like food. Diversity here is a very political matter that will not be settled very easily. Ideological conflict here is inevitable, and I think this is why I should vote against this proposition. The sooner we do it, the sooner we can start tackling more important tasks like privacy. Thank you, Yevgeny Morozov. Our motion is when it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. And here to summarize his position for the motion, Siva Vaidhyanathan, chair of the University of Virginia's Department of Media Studies and author of The Googleization of Everything. Jacob said, what if we had a world without the web? What if we had the world without the web? We might get there. Let me tell you why. Because Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Apple all wish to be the operating systems of our lives. They're explicit about this. They don't just want to be on the web because the web is 20 years old and it's actually kind of creaky. What they want to do is be there with you all the time, in your glasses, in your pocket, in your purse, and on your mind always. They want to be your personal assistant. There are, there's quote after quote after quote from every CEO of every one of these companies that that's what they want. And it might make things really cool for us, but it's not going to make things rich and diverse. It's not going to be the wonderful conversation that we could have had on the web if we hadn't instigated these gated communities, these operating systems of our lives. We're on the way to, to having a, a balkanized world and a balkanized society because of these gated communities. We should recognize that Facebook and Google and Yahoo and Bing and Apple and Microsoft are designed to gratify us immediately, and that's great for pizza, but it's not for politics. Thank you very much. Please vote for the resolution. Thank you. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it is time to learn which side you believe is argued best. We're going to ask you again to go to those keypads at your seat. So first, I want to ask, uh, I want to ask for a round of applause for our debaters for the quality of, of the arguments that they brought here tonight. It was witty and it was informative. All right, so the results are all in. Our motion is this. When it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds. You have heard the arguments for and against over the course of this debate. We asked you to vote before and again afterwards where you stand on this and how persuasive the teams were. Here are the results. Before the debate, 28% voted for the motion, 37% against, and 35% were undecided. After the debate, 53% are for the motion. That is up 25%. 36% are against. That is down 1%. We have 11% undecided. The motion, when it comes to politics, the Internet is closing our minds, has carried our congratulations to that team. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, presented by the Rosencrantz Foundation, was held at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. 
For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. To hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org slash intelligence squared. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.